DoorDash goes hourly and McCormick keeps things spicy. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard. I'm here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. Bill, I feel like everyone's getting a second dose of you this week, so that's awesome. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks for asking. Well, let's start talking about DoorDash. So they're the leader in the restaurant delivery wars. They announced an hourly wage option for dashers. Those are the couriers that do the pickups. Previously, it was on a per job basis. So I think this came because there was some pressure on sort of gig economy workers from local governments. I think this is good news for the dashers. Is it good news for the company? I think in the long term, it's good news for the company because it's going to supplement. Uh, in particular, pickup jobs that that weren't very profitable on a, a per job basis, but were on an, an hourly basis, or could be uh, at least uh, decent pay at an hourly basis, smaller orders, uh, longer travel. So, in terms of satisfaction of the ultimate customer, I think Door, DoorDash is going to be supplying uh, more of the deliveries uh, through this choice that uh, you know the dashers have. Uh, and I think it's uh, you know a recalibration of of the business model. Uh, if you know in these sort of run fast and break things kind of models, or get things out, don't worry too much about uh, where the profits are right away. Get, get a lot of customers, and then figure out the. Uh, profitability over time, both by the company and by the gig economy employees, uh, over time, you see where the holes in the system are, and um, this is filling in one of them. Yeah, the holes in the system thing is interesting, because this is a similar path that I think all of the sharing economy, gig economy companies have had to wrestle with. Uber has had to deal with it, Airbnb. This is just something that you know these these companies as as they evolve they sort of have to they're sort of becoming more like traditional work in some ways well there are regulations that show up uh, in in certain locations where uh, some of the uh, gig economy employees or not employees become considered employees or part of the way toward that uh, so i think that uh, you know over time you're not going to find that jobs like this pay either too much or too little, uh, but in the short term, they will. And I think that the people that can game the system the best uh, do the best until you know people hear, oh, if if you work the system this way, you can make a ton of money, uh, and then you get more supply. Chasing uh, chasing that, and that tweaks the model a little bit, and ultimately people get fairly paid is the likeliest outcome. Yeah, it's true. Uh, Around Uber, there's a whole system of people sort of giving advice about. Uh, you know which which rides to pick up and things like that. Another aspect of all these companies is the tipping, right? So another update DoorDash made on their app is they're now going to allow post checkout tipping for 30 days. It seems like a while to me, but there's been a little bit of a backlash sort of in uh, in the world about point of service tipping. Everybody feels like they're being asked for tips at at any any transaction, any moment. With DoorDash, with Uber, it seems like they have to do everything they can to encourage tipping to keep the workers happy. Is that are they sort of passing on some of the costs of doing business to the customer? 
No, there's no sort of about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you're you're a customer. You've had costs passed on to you. You've been oh, given yeah. uh, opportunities to tip that are many, many, many times the the number of transactions that used to be the case, uh, and you have. Perhaps I, I'm not accusing you of uh, tipping or not tipping at any point, <laughs> but uh, you've probably paid more money uh, for the same service in the last couple of years than uh, you did five years ago. Am I right about that? You are right about that because there's the other aspect of it, especially with Uber or something like that. I'm attached to my rating, uh, and that's part of the aspect of this too. If you don't tip and you plan to use the service again, you're going to be in trouble. I uh, have made uh, probably the mistake of not caring about my Uber rating. Oh, so, okay. so I <laughs> never really couldn't tell you what it is, and uh, therefore maybe I'm I'm not tipping as much as you are uh, in pursuit of a better rating. I'm hard pressed to think of an occasion where 27 days after a service I would have been compelled to tip. <laughs> right. I just I I I can't imagine the circumstances under which that would occur. Uh, so leaving things open for 30 days for a tip, I guess, signals something to to the employees. Look, you've still got a chance. You know, you, if, I guess if you go back to the same uh, spot, the same customer again and again, um, and deliver a, a good service, uh, maybe maybe you can get retroactive tipping. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Uh, maybe. We'll see. Uh, I want to take a quick pivot to another sharing economy service, because uh, yesterday on the show, you chatted with Ricky about Delta and travel. Travel boom is sort of uh, we're summer travel, even though it's gotten a little dicey with some of the airlines lately. But there was a story from a tweet that went viral yesterday uh, about Airbnb. Uh, a real estate consultant published some data from this company called All the Rooms, saying Airbnb revenue is down by 50 percent in, in markets like Austin and Phoenix. There's competing data from another company, AirDNA, saying the revenue is only down around 3 percent. Either way, looking at Airbnb, is there a demand problem, or is this a prices have gotten too high problem? I think that it's more likely that the prices, if not too high, have gotten gotten to be no no value compared to hotel rooms, especially on a short stay, given the what seems to be a very large cleaning service for any Airbnb stay. So I think that short term. Uh, rentals, hotels are going to be, if not competitive, um, or, or if not superior, very competitive, and and they're more of them. Uh, there are more uh, employees at the hotels today than there were a year ago. There's more people uh, coming in to do seasonal work than there was a year ago. It was still hard to get into the country a year ago. Uh, you had needed to have a, you know, a, a Negative uh, test, you know, just to get into the country. I can't remember what month that changed, but it was sometime after May uh, when I was traveling back into the country. And so, you know, it's just uh, a case, I think, you know, the data is very different between these two services as to what the extent of the decline is. As you point out, it, there is a decline year over year, uh, but 3% is very different from. Some markets, fifty percent. That's also a headline. So you know, selecting the hardest hit market of you course. can find, throwing that into your headline, calling it a collapse. Uh, there is no collapse here. 
but there's there's uh, you know more hotel rooms uh, being supplied with more staff that can turn around hotel rooms uh, you know in a timely manner. Yeah, the collapse thing. Uh, yeah, that was a very very overblown headline. But you mentioned the cleaning fees. This is a big issue that everyone has complained about. Airbnb they have made some moves to increase the transparency on it. The fees part is one problem. The other part is the demands that you get when you use an Airbnb. They ask you to like take out the trash or strip the bed. Sometimes it can be uh, more than that. Can Airbnb kind of? administer that on the corporate level, it's a little bit different than transparency with fees, because it's not at, at the app level, it's really at the host level. Yeah, ultimately, you get what you pay for. You know, if you are paying a very small amount for a room that seems, or a house that seems uh, exceptional, then there may be uh, additional fees that uh, uh, supplement that and make the fee less attractive, uh, or or you're getting less service than you know than you would if you were paying more. So, can the yeah, this is another example like uh, DoorDash, where you've you've got a new business model, you come out. It evolves. You tweak it. The broken things get fixed over time, uh, and and ultimately, the customer, hopefully, I think for Airbnb, the challenge is the the customer to have a consistent experience, uh, where it is very hard to give a consistent experience due to the nature of independent operators being the ones supplying. The rooms and, and housing. So, getting that information out there uh, in a more transparent manner. And Airbnb is not the only one who provides a price upfront that then you confront at the end of the transaction wasn't anywhere close to what you thought you were going to get. That's that's available in many many uh, different uh, travel services. So, uh, but if people are getting upset. Because of the experience of booking, booking their Airbnb stays, you know, Airbnb will correct that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about something different. A very consistent business, actually. We're in the heart of grilling season, which it seems like every food season might be good news for McCormick. Strong quarter for them, sales up percent. The part of the business where they see the growth, though, isn't necessarily the hot sauces, the spices that we buy. It's the flavor solutions they sell to businesses. So, why is this a growth area for McCormick? Well, the headline number seems like more growth than you know. Once you dig things away, flavor solutions uh, sales, and that's the category selling to restaurants and to um, you know the industrial market, formerly called the industrial segment, uh, up twelve percent. But uh, that was all pricing. Uh, it was a fourteen percent increase from pricing actions, offset by a one percent volume decline. And it was pretty much the same in the consumer segment, uh, much smaller, not able to raise prices as much, only 9% increase from pricing and a 2% volume decline. So, quarter, you know, quarter over quarter, year over year, by the quarter, people were uh, stocking up less, uh, but they were paying a lot more, especially 
at the restaurant level, which is also probably something that would come as no surprise to you or or listeners. It seems like restaurant pricing uh, has gotten uh, very generous. Uh, <laughs> at the restaurant level, <laughs> yeah, yeah, generous for them, not yeah, and a little bit painful for us. Yes, we're being the ones who are generous, and, <laughs> and apparently, they're being generous with the amounts that they are paying to to McCormick. That won't last forever. They're not going to be able to raise prices at that level. People aren't going to put up with, you know, inflation of the twelve to fourteen percent range uh, on. Uh, on their meals uh, or the components of the meals for very long, and of course, you know, inflation has come down recently uh, in the rest of the economy. So, I don't think that we're going to see numbers like this going forward for McCormick. As you point out, it's a very stable business. People aren't going to eat 10% more or be 10% more flavorful in their eating <laughs> uh, from one year to the next. That's true. We've got a CEO change with this one too. You talked about a CEO change yesterday with AutoZone. Another very, very stable, sedate kind of change. You've got Brendan Foley, who became president a year ago. He's taking on the CEO job in September. Uh, the current CEO, Lawrence Kurzius, he's going to stay on as the chairman of the board. Foley's been in leadership for a while. This just this seems like a nice, easy transition, kind of like the one from yesterday. Do you, is this what you want to see? Steady company, steady transition. Or, or do you sometimes want to see an outsider come in? Well, steady uh, is part of it, and the reason why you would want this to be a steady transition is it's not just steady. You can have a company that is a subpar performer, but very steady at doing so. McCormick's not that. McCormick has, uh, you know, been an exceptional uh, investment, uh, and and so you don't want to see that equation changed uh, particularly and and so it's a happy event i think for shareholders to see a continuity of of management where you do want to see management changes where you are not enjoying uh, exceptional or or above average returns and then you're going to see more agitation for it a change in style or name or more than that yeah we do, we, do, we don't need that with mccormick What's interesting to me about McCormick and about our taste in general is our capacity for spice. So we have just fallen in love with hot foods. Uh, Brendan Foley, who's that incoming CEO, he said it's not just the hot sauces, but it's also heat as a component of spices, seasonings, snacks, everything. That's like a huge growth area for them. They have Frank's Red Hot. They have some other hot sauce brands. Do you think they're going to continue to go down the hot sauce road, maybe buying other brands, or how do, how do they keep pace with the other companies that are embracing this hot all the things trend? Uh, it, historically, what they've done is to acquire great brands uh, and to keep them going. I think yeah. Old Bay, if regionally, is is probably the best known uh, brand. Here we are, you know, not too far from Maryland, and uh, Old Bay's. Very central uh, place in in the world of eating crabs is uh, uh, you know one of the things that uh, d- defines the uh, the experience. But I think that uh, it red uh, Frank's Reds and and some of the other hot sauce uh, acquisitions they've made are indicative of what they do with their excess earnings, uh, which is to make targeted acquisitions, and they've been successful and they're able to 
put more money behind the marketing uh, of regional success stories, and that has that has worked out. So I think that uh, rather than trying to develop new brands, uh, they're better off buying smaller, uh, regionally successful brands and, and bringing them both, uh, you know, domestically and internationally. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And then the hot sauce category, there's there's plenty to choose from. There is. There's plenty of regional success stories out there, and uh, they have the the ability to make them national success stories. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time today, Bill. Thanks for having me. Adobe's new generative AI product, Firefly, has people buzzing. That's not all you need to know about the company. Mary Long and Sanmeet Deo walk through Adobe's different businesses and where the company could go next. Today, we're putting the spotlight on one company benefiting from the AI gold rush. Here to talk all things Adobe is Motley Fool senior analyst, Sanmeet Deo. Glad to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Mary. Many listeners may already be familiar with Adobe for its creative software, but there's more to Adobe than just Photoshop, right? So, how does this company actually make money? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the first things we ask when we're looking at a company. So, basically, more than 93% of their revenue comes from subscriptions. Um, you know, their three main segments are digital media, which is about 73% of revenue, digital experience, which is about 25% of revenue, and publishing advertising, which makes up just a little bit around 2%. Um, they're geographically very diverse all across, you know, with America as being 60% of where the revenue comes from, EMEA 25%, Asia Pacific of 15%. You know, their gross margins and the high 80% and their operating margins have been above 30% in the past four years. So, you know, they have products that you've probably used before, PDF, Acrobat. Um, there's also a slew of content creation tools that video editors, photo editors use that, you know, I, I haven't used though that realm of, of, of software, but they have a wide variety of products across the digital landscape. Very good broad-based company. And are there other offerings beyond that like content creation bucket that you mentioned? Those are the the main ones, but the, we're and we're going to get into it a little bit later where they've been adding into their product suite with generative AI, which is mm. meant to kind of enhance some of those products. So we'll do, I know we're going to get into that a little later. And so with those offerings that you mentioned, without dipping too much into the generative AI stuff quite yet, who are Adobe's chief competitors? You mentioned PDF, Acrobat. Is there DocuSign their top their top competitor there? Yeah, DocuSign is is there, and that's actually a product I, I forgot to mention is is the the signature sign DocuSign style product that they have. But they also compete with the big software guys, Microsoft, um, Salesforce, some of those other um, companies. But there's also a lot of private companies that they that they compete with, whether it be um, you know Canva, Figma, various other um, private companies as well. Yeah, you mentioned Figma, and that's another thing that we'll get to in in just a bit. But before we dive into that, let's let's think about like the leadership of the company and offer an overview there. So the CEO Shansanu Narayan has been at Adobe's helm for about 16 years. How integral is Narayan's leadership to the Adobe story? Narayan has been a, a, a phenomenal CEO. He's been at the helm since 2007. Um, and just to give you a snapshot of what he's done, since he began this, Adobe stock has returned 17.1% versus 9.6% for the S&P 500. So over that period of time, the stock has outperformed 
based on a lot of the initiatives that he's taken on. You know, he's actually been recently named the number two in the top CEO list on Glassdoor. Um, he's been instrumental in them changing their business from a traditional software company where you would buy the package software to a cloud-based subscription model, which changed their revenue model to a more recurring, uh, steady um, revenue stream uh, rather than the, the traditional package software um, products. So that was a huge transition. It did it did s slow down the revenue a little bit, but it proved to be much higher margin and, and a better shift for them in the long run. Uh, and he's a, he's he's one of the ones that's helped establish a global standard for digital do digital documents with Acrobat and PDF, which is something we all use. You know, he led the launches of Creative Cloud in 2013, Experience Cloud in 2019. You know, he's he's guided the company in adapting to the changing digital landscape um, and he's also been and the company has been recognized as a top place to work for uh, women and minorities so he's very involved with diversity and inclusion so he's been a great CEO for them awesome you kind of gave us an overview earlier of some of the different metrics that have um, and how they've changed at Adobe over the past few years can you walk us through how you're thinking about Adobe's current valuation Mm -hmm. So currently, um, around for, based on 2023 estimates, they're trading at about a 31 times PE. Their free cash flow yields at about three and a half percent. And one quick metric I like to take a look at that I do a quick calculation on is if we were to assume a 20 times normalized PE, which is kind of a normalized PE for the market um, and various stocks over a long term average. Um, their current price, uh, which last I checked was 489. I haven't checked the one the, the price as of today, but their five year EPS case. So their current price of 49 implies a five-year earnings per share CAGR of about 20, 12%. So that's what the market is pricing in. Consensus expectations is about the same. So, so they're, they're kind of trading in line with what consensus thinks their earnings will grow at over the next few years. So they're fairly valued, I would say, and not significantly overvalued, even given the run-up in the stock, because while the stock's been running up, their earnings and their cash flows have been growing as well at a very high margin, steady clip. So um, fairly valued, I would say. Yeah, you mentioned the run up in the stock. Year to date, Adobe stock is up like over 40%. Has something in particular driven that surge? I think it's just been good old uh, fundamentals and strong results over the course of the year. You know, they've been they've been continuing to post strong results that beat expectations in a challenging economic environment for tech stocks and specifically SaaS stocks. And that just is a testament to the nature of their products and their software being a core product and, and utilization for their customers. And also, AI has been something that's been a big tailwind for them in, in terms of the momentum for the stock. So let's talk about AI. Like, what makes Adobe an AI play? So the thing I like about Adobe as an AI play is they've kind of not the first ones you can when you think of when it comes to AI. You know, you you think of Google or um, OpenAI and ChatGPT, but they've been slowly and steadily been working to integrate their generative AI tools into their core design products like Photoshop, Illustrator, and Premiere. And they've been working on it for a while, and now they're kind of starting to bring those products out to 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 bear, you know, 
the cool thing about their generative AI is it could entice customers to kind of pay more for the solutions they're already using um, with Adobe, as well as solutions that Adobe is creating in conjunction with AI to kind of enhance um, the usability and the, the interaction. So um, one of their core products that they recently came out with, they launched a beta version in March of Firefly. And Firefly is basically, if, you, if you've heard of Dolly 2 or Mid Journey, it's an AI photo generation, video generation, mostly photo generation for now, app, um, where it's trained on hundreds of millions of stock photos that Adobe has, the, uh, openly licensed content and copyrighted expired public images that you can basically type in a text, create me this image of so-and-so, be as creative as possible as you want, and it will create um, an AI-generated image for you. Um, what I like about what they're doing with this is too is they're trying to play it safe and be very mindful of copyright laws to protect artists and their work. They're not in a rush to kind of be the first mover and move fast and break things as, as is always the case in technology. While some of the other image generation IAI apps are at risk of potential copyright infringement. So they're already getting some heat. And while regulation is is forthcoming, as it always is, Adobe's trying to play that 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 good side of that and kind of be on the, the side of the artists and um, the content creators. Yeah, I saw something literally today that was saying Adobe was so confident in their Firefly program that they would like support the legal fees of any artists that were faced with copyright infringement lawsuits or something because they because that that system is trained on Adobe's wholly owned stock images and openly sourced ones. Um, there shouldn't be any issues there. So that was kind of an interesting play, but speaks exactly to what you're saying. Yeah, and then also just one thing I want to add about Firefly, it's only it's three months since Firefly's launched, users have created almost half a billion images with its tools. Right now it's free and the and they're going to um at some point charge for it. And the other thing I wanted to mention about Adobe and their and their AI uh, generation is this is one thing that we look for in our portfolios uh, when it comes to AI investing is how close are they or are they monetizing their AI? Like many companies talk about AI, they say they're going to explore AI, but are they really making money from it or is it just something to boost up their 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 stock and kind of get people excited about them? Adobe's I would argue is close to that that tipping point of actually monetizing AI and especially with the fact that their current tools are going to be enhanced by AI and it could help retention and and added um, use, usability. So Adobe's been around since 1982, so it's not like it's the new kid on the block. But as we've just said, it is stepping into this like cutting edge technology and is being a real player there. So is this company? Do you think of this as a stalwart company, or is there still a growth story here? That's a good and tricky question, and I think it is a stalwart with the optionality and potential for huge growth opportunity ahead. You know, they have their core businesses that are generating a ton of cash flow and steady. Um, operating like you know cash flow um, so that is there and it's it's gonna gonna continue to do well um, but I think with the generative AI that that pr provides an additional boost in terms of growth and the figma acquisition could add another boost of growth if that were to to be approved so I see it as one one of the um, stalwarts with a growth component to it yeah, and for sure. So let's kind of step into this Figma conversation too. Last year, Adobe announced its plans to acquire Figma, which is a collaborative design software and a huge competitor to Adobe. Um, 
And the, the price tag on this was $20 billion. So there was plenty of skepticism around that like sky high number, um, but also around potential antitrust issues. So the US and UK regulators are already considering blocking the deal, and the EU recently launched an antitrust investigation. How central is the success or failure of this acquisition to your Adobe investing thesis? I don't think it's central to the Adobe thesis because, like I said, they have such a, a core business that is strong and, and doing very well, very highly diversified with a ton of recurring revenue and cash flow generation. Their Gener AI, I think, is going to be very additive to their core business as well as you know future lines of business. Um, but you know the deal has some positive attributes, which I think could really help them um, in terms of gaining access to a new user base, complementing their tools with Figma's tools, which are not completely the same. Um, helps them stay competitive in a collaborative design software market, and it kind of diversifies their products and revenues even more. So while it's a very high price tag, 50 times forward revenue, which I think would would possibly be the highest for for a um, software acquisition, it has a lot of positive attributes that could be additive for them in, in, the, in the future. But if the deal doesn't get approved and doesn't fall apart, I would not be hesitant to continue to own the stock and, and be positive on it. Sounds like there's a lot of upside with Adobe, kind of no matter how you slice it. Whether or not this acquisition goes through, kind of they're, they're paving the way, but being patient with AI. So lots of things to watch here and, and lots of good news all around. Thanks so much, Sanmeet, for um, diving into Adobe with us today. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Mary. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.